Hi, everyone. I'm Alan Murray. And I'm Ellen McGirt. And Alan, the past two weeks have been, I barely have words for it. As someone who follows the race beat for as long as I have, in some ways I feel like I've been pushing a rock up a hill, and now the rock has just tumbled right back down on all of us. It's been painful, exhausting, but somehow necessary. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more, Ellen. But you know, in our world here on Leadership Next, there's also something very different this time. Uh, you've had this outpouring of, of commentary from the CEOs of the largest corporations in the world. And, you know, I sometimes hear people say, oh, this is what CEOs always do. It's done by their PR departments. But it's not what CEOs always do. Go back and check the coverage around Ferguson uh, six years ago. Or go back into the 1990s and look at Rodney King. The standard CEO response at that time was to hide under their desk. I said, you know, it's a controversial social issue. It's not my problem. Doesn't affect my bottom line. Line, keep me out of it. So something has changed here. I agree. I agree. And the business case for diversity is also the moral case for diversity. So it's all starting to weave together. What we're we're seeing the barriers that have been playing out, and we forget we're in the middle of a pandemic, and the very people who are out leading the charge in peaceful protests I'm speaking about, and in real reform efforts are the people who are most likely to be negatively affected by the disease itself. It's all so complicated. It's all so poignant. And you're right. It all feels different now. Yeah, it's a fascinating moment in our history. And, and that's what we're going to talk about today on Leadership Next, Fortune's podcast about the changing rules of business leadership. Uh, you know, I'm sure some of these statements are just PR and the words won't be followed by action. But there are other cases where you have CEOs who have deep feelings and who are under uh, great pressure from their most talented employees. And we're going to hear from one of those CEOs today, Chuck Robbins of Cisco, who I think is really trying to figure out what the role of business in this larger social context should be and, and how to play in the conversation around racial justice and inequality. Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are super focused on how CEOs can lead in the context of disruption and devolving societal expectations. In the days since George Floyd was killed, we've seen a range of responses from the business community. Public statements of support for Black lives from major brands, public promises to do better about diversity and inclusion in their own ranks, and I think we're in the early days here, but small steps toward deciding which public policies to support that may reduce systemic racism and this kind of violence. And Ellen, I, I don't want to take away from any of that because I do feel like it's a profound change. But at the same time, it is at this point just words. And what everybody's going to be looking for is how are those words going to be followed up with actions? How do you distinguish between what's just a public relations response and what is a long and lasting effort to deal with the problem? Well, that's the question, isn't it, Alan? So to help us answer that, I wanted to turn to someone who's truly an expert. Dr. Aaron Thomas is a researcher, social scientist, and the vice president head of diversity, inclusion, and belonging for the freelance platform Upwork. But lately, she's been working overtime, sharing her best advice for leaders at every level on how to understand what's happening now and respond and what's at stake for both Black employees and society. Aaron, welcome to Leadership Next. 
Thanks so much for having me. We've seen tremendous interest in people stepping up, making statements, making promises, making donations. Why can't we trust this moment, do you think? I'm not sure we can, I'll say full stop. I think for some you know, companies, they have been taking strides to be very action-oriented and forward-focused in terms of the commitments that they're making. Others have not, so I'm happy to talk about some of the missteps that I've seen, both with public messages, but also with the messages that my friends all over the country have been sending me privately from their leadership teams that I think really missed the mark and have been stirring up distrust amongst employees. Uh, would you want to hear a little more? Let's dig right in. So, you know, I've been thinking about, I think, two pretty common clusters of missteps that I've been seeing, especially with the private messages that friends and colleagues have been, uh, colleagues from former workplaces have been sending my way. You know, one big category is, you know, these performative type of messages where it's a right. statement without commitment. It's really just a, a blackout Tuesday. It's a hashtag. It's it has no meat to it. Uh, and I think the general structure of those messages is this isn't right. We stand with black people. Uh, OK, right. I mean, that, that says nothing about what the company is, is you know, investing in or uh, committing to moving forward. So that just doesn't land well with anybody, including uh, employees who are not black. I think the other type of sort of performative message that I've seen is exactly what you already described, which is one that is only externally focused. So, you know, corporate giving and donations and aligning with Black Lives Matter certainly are important, but they're not sufficient in sort of, you know, having companies look in the mirror to understand, articulate and act on the systemic racism that likely exists within their own organizations. And so, you know, those statements are, are usually toned as this isn't right and we're giving to black causes. There's no internal focus. Uh, it's sort of a putting the problem is out there um, and sort of outsourcing the responsibility. So uh, those don't land well. I think the other category of problematic statements that I've seen are ones that are fairly colorblind. And so there's this interesting new wave of colorblindness that I'm noticing where I think companies oh, wow. are having a hard time centering black employees who are the people we're talking about right now. Right. Uh, right. So I've seen messages that might start with, you know, solidarity with black employees, but then get into, we are here with you as a black professional. We're also here with you whose neighborhoods might have been torn up by protesters. We're also here with you who may have people in your family who are in you know, policing systems or the military. And while all of those things might be true, what that does is it really waters down that specificity around the Black experience. And so you know, if the goal here is around Black inclusion and Black belonging, the message gets lost because you're speaking to too many people. Um, I think the last thing I've seen with kind of more colorblind messaging is, is positioning this just as a black people issue. So it's sort of, you know, we're here to support you, whatever you need, as opposed to this is all of our problems. We're all outraged. This is something for all of us to be concerned about. And the, the problem with not doing that is that, you know, I worry that it, it paints this common tone that we often see with corporate allyship, which sort of positions marginalized people as as people to, to sort of pity, right? Uh, versus yeah. people to empathize with. 
And the problem with that is we're not really effectively building bridges around, you know, collective action or solidarity. It's sort of a a specific or a singular issue that only affects us, you know, a small proportion of people versus threatens the whole enterprise towards what your company is working toward or is about. I'm here with Joe Yukazoglu, who is the CEO of Deloitte U.S. and had the good sense to sponsor this podcast. Thanks for being with us and thanks for your support. Thanks, Alan. Pleasure to be here. So, Joe, business leadership used to be about setting strategy in the C-suite and then giving orders to everybody down the line, telling them what they need to do to implement the strategy. But today, things are moving too fast for that kind of a top-down approach. How do you be an effective leader in that kind of rapidly changing environment. You hit the nail on the head, Alan. We've actually given a lot of thought recently to adjusting our own leadership frameworks in terms of the attributes that are necessary to serve as an effective enterprise leader. In this environment, the longstanding hierarchical pyramid with orders coming down from the top simply cannot effectively deal with the pace of change. Being a great leader in this environment requires a lot of listening, empowering one's people, setting the tone for a culture of innovation and strategic risk-taking. Because at the end of the day, you can't be involved in every interaction with your customers, with your employees, with your regulators. You have to instill in your professionals a sense of values to drive the way in which they'll make those on-the-spot decisions on behalf of the organization. Thank you, Joe. Alan, it's a real pleasure. Welcome back to Leadership Next. We're here with Chuck Robbins, who is the CEO of Cisco. And and last week, Chuck put out a pretty strong statement in response to uh, what happened to George Floyd. He called it horrific, maddening, truly abhorrent, and talked about the pain, frustration, and anger that people were feeling. And Chuck, my question for you is, this is a police problem, a criminal justice problem. Why is the CEO of Cisco speaking out on this? We need to show society who we are and what we believe in. We just have been working over the last six months to redefine and rebuild what we believe the purpose of our corporation is. We've had the same purpose for a very long time, and we decided, what do we stand for today? And ironically, six months ago, our purpose statement that we came up with was to power an inclusive future for all. And we think about that through both our technology lens and the connectivity that we can bring to remote parts of the world and just connect everybody so they can have education, healthcare, and opportunity. But when we believe that, we feel obliged to make these statements when we see something that is so just uh, terribly wrong. Not to mention the fact that our employees, our customers, our communities, our partners, they all want to know where where do you stand on these issues. And I think that, um, you know, we've been involved in other issues uh, such as homelessness in Silicon Valley when nobody else has been really from a corporate perspective. And to the extent we can help bring together and look, there's so many companies out there on this issue. So I don't, I don't pretend to stand alone on this one, obviously, but on homelessness, we kind of were. But I think, you know, as we all come together, I think we can be part of the solution as well. I don't recall if you take the clock back to 2014 and the Ferguson event or even further to Rodney King in the 1990s. I don't recall seeing this outpouring of CEO sentiment. In fact, I, what I very specifically recall, because I covered those events, was CEOs were basically under their desk. They said, it doesn't affect my bottom line. It's a government issue, not a, a company issue. And I don't want to talk about it. So what's changed? 
Well, times have changed. There's an expectation that CEOs are actually being asked to be more vocal on these issues uh, in our society. And I can tell you, I'm almost five years in this job, and I have stood in front of our company and, and had some really complicated discussions with them uh, about everything from the, the bathroom bills that we saw popping up to the political landscape in the United States, the divisiveness that exists to these current situations. And it is, uh, you know, when you think about running a company, one of the most important assets you have are your people. And so in order to create an environment where you want the best talent to be, there's an expectation that you're going to have an open dialogue about these issues. And uh, what I've talked to our employees about is there are certain issues where as a company, we're going to have a very binary take on what's happened, like this issue that happened with George Floyd. It's, it's just wrong, right? There are other issues where we're going to have a spectrum of our employees who are going to believe one way and a spectrum that are going to believe another way. And it's based on their upbringing, their political beliefs. And in those, we just try to encourage conversation. We try to encourage them to seek a different opinion that doesn't align with yours and just try to learn and understand why people feel the way they do. But we've had we've taken on every issue that has arisen in the last five years with our employee base because they've they've asked us to. Chuck, as you probably know, when you're on the race and inclusion beat as I am, then Cisco's chief people officer, Fran Katsudis, is pretty much on speed dial. And I really appreciate how much time she spent teaching me about your vision and her vision over the years. So I'm, I'm curious a little bit about a couple of things. One is, what are you learning now? And then my follow-up is, is going to be about what actually influences you? Because our Leadership Next listeners really want to make an impact on the leaders around them. So I'm curious about what helps you feel that you've got what you need to talk about these very difficult issues. Well, first of all, Fran is amazing, and she is uh, she has guided me a great deal uh, on these issues as well. We we have a lot of discussions at a leadership level for us to get grounded and try to understand what they are. We have advisory groups inside the company that that talk to us about the things that are important to them. So the black employees, we've spent a lot of time, ironically, in the last six months understanding what their experience at Cisco is. So this is not like I'm sitting around trying to figure out what to say. I mean, it's through really spending time with them and understanding. And even one of the things that that the white community struggles with significantly is being very concerned that you're going to say the wrong thing. This is a, about nine months ago, I read White Fragility. And it was, uh, it, it was an incredible book. And it actually was good that I read that ahead of this because it educated me. And so I think this is... Two things. Number one, you have to talk to the people who are living the experience every day. You have to understand from their perspective, or you just won't understand. And then you almost have to just up front say, listen, we want to engage in this discussion. Anything that we say that's wrong, tell us it's wrong, but know that it comes from a spirit of a good place and it comes from from within. We're, we're trying to engage in this discussion. So let's have an open dialogue. And I think that's all you can do. And if you're sincere, it's going to work. So listening is a big part of it, but then you have to make sure people trust you to be able to drive policy and to make big decisions and to and to move things forward. How do you drive trust at Cisco? Uh, I think it's the most important thing we do is frequent, authentic, honest communication and being vulnerable and being honest and open and letting people know when you don't know something. And it's it's been something that we've been doing for the last five years with our what was a monthly check-in that we call the Cisco Beat. 
And that's where we tackled anything. We, we would have business issues. We would be talking about some of these social issues. That's where we began talking about mental health a couple of years ago, which became a massive discussion that we've had inside the company. So I think you build trust actually during the normal times. Uh, and it's very difficult to build it during times of crisis. You can do it, but it's a whole lot easier to do during, during normal times. Chuck, you're talking about communication and words, which are obviously very, very important. But at the end of the day, what people are looking for here is action. They, they want to see some things change. What can Cisco do to drive that? There are a lot of things we can do. We can continue the work that we have been doing to ensure that we're aware of the experience of our black employees in this example, but it applies to Latinx. It applies to all of our groups of employees within the company. I think that's one of the core things that, that is super important because if you don't get that right, the foundation of how you operate with your black employees in this particular situation, then a lot of the rest doesn't matter. But I think that you know, organizations like Business Roundtable putting together a special committee that's going to look at all of these issues and then lining up with civil society organizations to actually bring, if we bring the business community together with civil society and NGOs that actually do this every day and have done all the research and have all the insights already about what needs to be done, I think that's another area and that's something we're working on actively. We obviously can put financial resources behind some of these things, uh, which we're also doing. And then we can also improve the representation of, you know, the black community at our executive level on our board, much like everybody else has. You know, we've, during this time, for those of us who have spoken out, we've all had microscopes put on our leadership teams and our boards for all the right reasons. And I think that um, it's now incumbent upon us to really be much more aggressive on that front and just acknowledge that we haven't done the job we need to do. And, you know, I think when people criticize us for not having they're almost questioning, how can you speak out if you don't have people on your board or your executive team? I guess my question is, would you rather me not put my resources behind it because I don't? Or would you rather me put my resources behind these issues and then commit to actually moving forward more positively in that area, which is the route that we chose to take? I'd like to ask about representation piece. You mentioned the board, you mentioned senior leaders. I'm curious if you're setting any new goals here, any benchmarks, any quotas. You'd, you'd mentioned that the, the pandemic has created a new hybrid work model. It seems like this might be an interesting time to, to figure out new ways to make sure that representation is front and center. Yeah, I think we, um, the answer is yes. We spent some very deep time with about 16 or 17 of our black employees back in January. In fact, they were at my house and we did this exercise with them that was several hours long where we actually listened to a discussion that was moderated about their experience at Cisco and my entire executive team sat and listened. And I have to tell you, then we actually provided, we gave our thoughts back afterwards and almost to a person, every one of my leadership team, as they were speaking to this community, had tears in their eyes because there was so much that we learned about their experience. And what that led us to was kicking off a 100-day sprint around trying to actually go tackle a lot of these issues. And as I think back four or five years ago, probably the last decade, we've had a, a huge focus on gender-related issues, right? And we learned a lot around this and, you know, about five years ago, I said, the first thing I'll tell you is that everything we've tried to pass, just throw it away because it hasn't worked. And so we've identified a few things that have helped. And now my team is virtually 50-50, male, female, my leadership team. And then it begins to flow through the organization. And I think a lot of those learnings we can now apply to, to the Black community. But to your specific question, I think the flexibility of where we can hire will actually help us 
we've been doing lots of same things other companies have been doing over the last several years. We've, we've really increased our recruiting for our college programs from historically black college and university system, as a lot of companies have done. But I think there's there's an awful lot more that we can do, and we will get much more aggressive as a result of probably the last month, which which is a good thing. It's a shame it came to this, but it's a good thing. I have to say, I mean, I've watched a number of your comments and interviews and read some reports on internal meetings. This seems very personal to you. This one does. Is that right? It, it is. Um, look, I, I, I grew up, I had, I had this really set of diverse experiences growing up. I grew up in a very pure white community until I was about 13 years old. And then I shifted to a high school that was about two thirds black. So I went from like having zero experience to, and then I played lots of athletics and sports and got to be very close to uh, to a lot of my black peers at the time. And I think that um, the way you're raised and when you get in these, these roles, look, every CEO at some point thinks about, why did I get in this job? Why, why, why me, right? And they may not all tell you that, but I guarantee at some point they've sat back and asked themselves that question. And for me, running the business and being competitive and performing and delivering for our shareholders, and that, that's all critical and it's table stakes. But I also believe, and I have believed, that there's an opportunity to do something bigger. And it's a whole lot better to do those things during times when you're not in crisis. So we made the move two years ago to get very active in the homeless issue in San Jose. And that's been something that's been very fulfilling to the company. It's created a lot of energy. It's, it's really lifted you know, our employee base. And, and we've seen homelessness efforts now expand all around the world just because we got involved in Silicon Valley. And I think this issue, although it's being brought on, it's not even being brought on, it's existed for a very long time. It's being highlighted again right now. And I think that uh, for most of us, it's an opportunity, uh, hopefully, to make the world a better place before we leave these jobs. And I think that's what we believe in. Chuck, I, I want to back up a little bit, because before George Floyd, before the pandemic, there was clearly a movement in the business community to think differently about the purpose of a corporation. It was most formally uh, recognized by the Business Roundtable in August of last year when they adopted that statement, moving from shareholder primacy, the main thing we have to do is make money for the shareholders in the short term, to a stakeholder model. We have to worry about our employees, our customers, our communities, the environment, et cetera. And I know you were part of that movement. I wonder, first of all, why you think that happened? And second, do you think it's going to keep going or are the economic hard times going to slow it down? Well, I think, first of all, I think the world's changed and, and businesses are held accountable for these other issues now. And even our shareholders are asking us to get involved in a lot of these issues. I mean, this is the whole notion of ESG investing that has occurred. So this is not like our shareholders aren't sitting around saying, what are you guys thinking? They're actually saying, we're ready for this. And I think it will continue. I mean, clearly companies that are having massive shock to the system financially, they can't afford to do anything. So I think that the thing you have to understand is that there wasn't some ranking order that was defined in these, these groups. They all have to sort of work together. But I think telling our shareholders, if we have employees who are incredibly motivated, incredibly proud, just like when last October when we were named the number one global workplace, those people are more productive, they're more effective, they're more innovative, they're more customer focused, et cetera. So that's actually good. So all these things kind of work symbiotically, I think, to benefit all portions of the stakeholder community. So if you get them all right, uh, I think 
it's good, but it's never going to be perfect. And you're going to have times where one of those stakeholders actually you're focused on more so than the other, because if one completely breaks, then the whole thing falls apart. So it's not as clear. And, you know, people look at it and they want to pick the one stakeholder that they want to prioritize. And if you do anything that actually seems to be counter to that within one of the four or five stakeholders that are named, then and everybody says, well, you don't believe in it anymore. It's like, no, it's a balance all the way around. And so, you know, if you have to restructure a part of the organization because there's a piece of your business that is in decline over the next five or seven years, that doesn't mean you don't believe in the model. It's just the reality of the business. Well, Chuck, thanks very much for taking the time to be with us. Thank you. Ellen, I, I think the crisis has made it clear that companies still have a lot of work to do on this issue of racial justice and inequality. And it seems to me that many of them are still trying to figure out the best way to do it. Absolutely. And Dr. Aaron Thomas, who we heard from earlier, had some really solid advice on this exact topic. That's interesting. I'm sure we're all overwhelmed with inboxes full of notes from various companies about supporting Black Lives Matter and racial equity. But Aaron really places a larger importance on internal communications. It's what you say inside your own house that matters most. I'll quickly say, I don't know if every company necessarily needs to speak out publicly, but you certainly need to at least be speaking in publicly, uh, you know, amongst all of your professionals and all your employees. So in response to this acute crisis, the very least that any company can and should do is to mark this moment. Show your people that you see them, show in particular your black people that you see them and that this isn't a news cycle, this isn't in the background, but that you understand the weight that a lot of folks are carrying. I think longer term, right, kind of coming out of this acute race crisis, that's where we need to get to long-term sustainability planning with regards to Black inclusion and belonging. And that's where that accountability and action needs to be doubled down upon. You know, companies have had the resources for some time. There's so much expertise that is open source, that is very Googleable, and a lot of companies do spend money in this space, but the scarcest resources we have are time and attention. And that's what this work requires. And so I think companies should only commit to what they can do. But then once they make that commitment, they need to follow through. Right. If my network, my race ahead network and my feed is any indication, then every black person who's ever called themselves a consultant is getting called right now. And while I love to see the family get the work, what I'm concerned with is that these are not going to be meaningful engagements. What is your best advice for a major brand, corporate brand, when engaging outside expertise in continuing to do the work that they need to do? That's a great question. I would say it's sort of along those two prongs of short-term and long-term thinking. In the short term, I think it definitely makes sense if you don't have the internal expertise to hire externally to have an explicit conversation around the current moment. What does anti-racism look like? What are these protests? Why shouldn't we call them riots? What's the history of Black people in this country? How does this show up in the workplace? That is a timely conversation to have. And while emotions are heightened, I think companies should outsource that expertise if they need to. But I would advise any company who's doing that to only do that if they can also sign a longer term agreement with that consultant or another consultant 
to really unpack their organizational systems, to turn over their employee data, to understand what the unique and distinct pain points are with regards to the Black employee experience. And unless you have, again, the capacity to invest that time and attention to get to the root causes and then design specific solutions to turn over how racism is likely embedded into how you operate, then Mm -hmm. you probably shouldn't be having the anti-racist conversation because it's not just about individual behaviors. It's about the machinery that enables our companies to churn and the talent decisions that we make on a micro level every day that weed into the macro level decisions around whom we hire, whom we fire, and whom we promote. So unless you're willing to do all that work, you might rethink the short-term band-aids. So Aaron, we've talked about messaging, we've talked about authenticity, we've talked about commitments. What is a really solid next step for any company that is fully prepared to take one? That's a great question. I think the next step has to, in some way, shape, or form, be more transparency, at least internally, with where you are and where you're trying to go with, you know, in this case in particular, obviously, Black representation, Black inclusion, Black belonging, and all the different ways in which you're measuring that. You know, without grounding this in data and metrics, it becomes soft, it becomes feel-good, people don't know what they're trying to achieve. And I think it's really important that companies approach their diversity and belonging and inclusion, whatever acronym you use, strategy with the same rigor and intentionality as they do their business strategy. And that's the way to elevate these conversations and to keep us accountable. So I would say if you haven't shared your data or you haven't at least shared your goals and the gaps between where you are now and where you want to be, you've got to do that with your people. It's hard to ask them to join you in solidarity towards something that they can't really touch or feel. So we've got to ground this in the facts. Acute race crisis aside, especially within this pandemic, a lot of employees, a lot of prospective employees are really strongly considering what it is they want to stand for uh, in these places where they spend most of their waking hours. And so uh, it really is about humanizing the workplace and understanding the fact that people want a workplace they can believe in. And so I guess I would say, rather than seeing this as a potential liability, this is such an opportunity for leaders to really step up, speak up, and and really re-envision the future of work. Ellen, thanks for that. And, And thanks to all of you for downloading and listening to Leadership Next. Join us again next week. Leadership Next is edited by Nicole Vergala. Written by me, Alan Murray, along with my amazing colleagues, Ellen McGirt and Megan Arnold. Our theme is by Jason Snell. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a production of Fortune Media. Leadership Next episodes are produced by Fortune's editorial team. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Deloitte or its personnel, nor does Deloitte advocate or endorse any individuals or entities featured on the episodes. Hey, Leadership Next listeners. There's more C-suite insight available now at the all-new Fortune. 
you'll find expert curation, exclusive videos, and clear analysis on topics ranging from AI to digital health. Subscriptions start at less than a dollar a week. Visit fortune.com slash subscribe and discover why it pays to know.